Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm your host, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast is Miles Stapleberg. Uh, if you missed our first episode with Miles, it's worth it to go back and listen. Uh, Miles is, um, well, he works as a technical consultant at Quest Tech Innovations. He is a graduate student at the Plasma Science and Fusion Center at MIT. He also serves on CI's Innovation Advisory Board. So we have a board of scientists, people like Tomas and Miles, who we work with, who help us get to the bottom of what is actually going on from a technology perspective. Because I have geopolitical expertise, Rob has market expertise, we have a lot of expertise on staff. But for a lot of these advances, you need to talk to the scientists themselves and you need to understand these developments because even one development can change markets overnight. Um, so I really appreciate Miles coming on. Uh, when I stopped, when I hit the stop button on recording, I complimented Miles. I told him, you know, you're the rare scientist who can make their ideas intelligible to someone like me who really, I mean, I have some science background, but certainly not at the level that Miles does. And he said he wanted to credit ChatGPT for helping him come up with his analogies. So he uses some great analogies in here with ice cream cones and other things. And apparently we have ChatGPT to thank for that as well. I don't know how to feel about that. Uh, listeners, Jacob at cognitive.investments. That's my email address. We reference um, an innovation disruption report that uh, Rob and Miles wrote together. It is available only for Knowledge Platform um, subscribers. If you wanna talk more about that, if you wanna get access to that report that we mention and talk about for a few minutes in the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me. You can also hit me up there if you want me to come onto your podcast, if you wanna talk about letting us manage some of your wealth, um, or if you wanna talk about you know what books I should be reading or what guests I should be having on. Email me anytime. I try to reply to every email that comes through no matter how busy I am. Uh, Otherwise, that's enough for me. Let's get to Miles. Cheers and see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, Miles, it's good to be to be back with you. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I often when, find myself when I'm in conversation with people, I either think I'm the smarter person in the conversation or I think that the person, you know, we're sort of on the same level. When I get into a room with, with you, uh, I don't feel like the smarter person in the conversation because, you know, I wish I'd been an astrophysicist and all these other things and I just didn't have the gumption to do it. So it's nice to have you on and I hope you're ready for me to pepper you with what will probably be academic questions for you, but which I think will be very interesting for the audience. Oh, well, um, do you mean this, Miles? I, I, is there another one here? Yes, uh, yes, the very same, the one the <laughs> one right. who is, is far too humble about his own abilities and things like that. Um, and, and to show you how basic we're going to get, because most people are not on your level, um, there was a lot of news over the past couple of weeks, and I reached out to you originally because, you know, two, three weeks ago, it looked like we had a room temperature superconductor. So let's start with the basic questions first. What is a superconductor and why would a room temperature superconductor be such a big deal? Okay. Yeah, I'll 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 try to explain this. And but first off, thanks so much for having me on on the on, on this podcast. I uh started with a poor joke, but hopefully my explanation of what a superconductor <laughs> is might be a bit uh more appreciated. So I guess like what we'll start off with is a superconductor, if you the easiest way to think of it is if you have say a normal copper wire and you want to send electricity through it it's going to conduct the electricity but there's going to be some friction it's like if you're throwing your hand through the air you'll feel some of the drag there's some friction that is going to be in place when you conduct the electricity through that wire with superconductors we don't have this friction you're able to, there's essentially these lanes that the electricity can flow through without encountering any resistance. And this allows you to send a lot of electricity or current um, through the superconductor without any losses. And the loss is really important for what we care about uh, because if you don't have resistive losses, 
Uh, I believe the U.S. spends about wastes about five percent of its electricity just through resistive losses. Um, mm-hmm. Then you get more energy um, conversion, and you can send electricity more. You can send it to further distances. There are a lot of benefits of superconductivity, uh, and that's just for electricity uh, transmission and maybe some power electronics. So ways that we can convert, send, store. Um, and use electricity. The other use case of superconductors is in the use of, say, magnets, magnet technology. So you may have heard of magnetic levitation trains. There's a ton of those in China. Um, You also may be familiar with uh, MRIs. MRIs Mm -hmm. are another... uh, they're probably one of the, I think they're the most early adopter of superconductors uh, in industry, and they need those superconducting magnets because if you don't have friction when you're sending current through the superconducting magnet, you can get a stronger magnetic field. Stronger magnetic field in the MRIs, I believe, gives you better resolution. I don't know exactly how those things work, but my intuition is that they needed a stronger magnetic field and the superconducting uh, magnets let them get that. So, with superconductors, we'll recap. You basically have a freeway with no speed limit, and that freeway has instead of cars, electrons that can just zoom through the freeway. Uh, and without speed limits, uh, you have much quicker delivery of electricity. Uh, well, maybe not quicker, but you you have say less loss when you deliver the electricity. Um, And then for magnets, the maybe more important thing uh, about superconductors, especially there's two types. There's the type one superconductor, which was the first one that we found. Um, And then there's a type two superconductor, which is a bit more robust. the, The analogy is like the type one is like an umbrella. It can protect you from a little bit of rain, but if you say... Uh, if, there, if there's a thunderstorm with wind as well, the umbrella becomes kind of useless. That thunderstorm and rain is like sending too much electricity through it. Whereas the type two superconductor is like a thick raincoat. No matter the wind, the rain, you're going to stay dry. It's just, yeah. So that's just sort of the difference that the type two superconductors are a bit more robust. And I don't, I won't go into like the condensed matter physics because I frankly don't understand it. But that's sort of like the difference between them is uh, for all practical use cases, we use the type two because you can actually send current through them to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the significance of, of the, so the, the discovery that everybody was talking about was, was that it was a room temperature superconductor. So why, why, why was the room temperature bit of that the important part? Yeah, because normally superconductors, even the type 2 superconductors and the high temperature superconductors, uh, they operate at negative 260 or so Celsius or even colder. And we usually use Kelvin, which is absolute temperature. Um, Most superconductors operate below 4 Kelvin. Um, So very, very cold. Room temperature is 290 or, yeah, 290 three or so Kelvin, give or take. Um, so we're, we're operating very cold to make most superconductors work. Um, the best superconductors we have stay superconducting up until around 77 Kelvin. And those are the rare earth uh, barium copper oxide uh, superconductors that um, a lot of fusion companies are looking to use in their devices. Um, the implications of a room temperature superconductor are that you wouldn't need to cool these materials down to cryogenic or even colder temperatures, saving you a lot of money in energy usage because it, it's expensive to cool these uh, conductors down to the operating temperature. Once you have the superconductor at that temperature, they use virtually no power. Uh, the MIT did a test of a superconducting magnet and when you actually turn the magnet on when it was superconducting it was using like watts of power so less than a light bulb Um, but to get to that point it took 
perhaps kilowatts or even megawatts to cool the magnet down to those conditions. So you have to, so there's a huge energy savings potential if you could get a superconductor working at room temperature. There are some superconductors that do work at room temperature, but you have to squeeze them really hard. So like 10,000 times harder than atmospheric pressure. Um, and so there's, you either have to keep the temperature really cold right now, or you have to press the material really hard to get superconductivity. Uh, and so if you had a room temperature atmospheric pressure superconductor like LK99 said it was going to be, that would have been game changing. Um, especially if there were a few other, say, benefits of it that they couldn't prove. Right. Well, and that leads into, so LK99, which was basically a compound of copper, lead, phosphorus, and oxygen. And it's, and correct me if I get any of these details wrong, but there were some South Korean scientists who published a paper that said they had, they had been able to put these different elements together in some kind of metal, I guess, um, that was a, what, that was a superconductor at normal pressure. Um, and honestly, like, and it, it took off like wildfire on Twitter. Like it took days for the normal media complex to wake up to the fact that this was happening. But on Twitter, I mean, you had accounts that were popping up that were just about following the LK99 news and you had Chinese laboratories and US laboratories already testing these things before it even really hit sort of mainstream media, which that was also interesting. And maybe we'll talk about sort of the philosophy of information flow there at some point. But I also have to confess, like one of the reasons so a friend of mine texted me about it. I, I didn't even pay attention that much attention to it to myself. And he was like, you really need to pay attention to this. And when I started reading about it, I mean, it almost sounded like these South Korean scientists like had gone into their garage and had spliced a couple of things together and been like, boom, like we found the superconductor. Um, so I just wonder like, what was your first reaction or, or how did you first find out about LK99 and what was your first reaction to it based on what you found out? Uh, yeah, so I don't have a Twitter, and so my friend, it was actually Tomas, uh, who has also been on the podcast, and he showed me a few of the tweets and actually talked to me about it, asking me like what I thought. Uh, and, and one of the things I told him is, let's just wait a bit and see who proves it, uh, whether or not it works or not. And then even if it is superconducting, I sort of hinted at this earlier. If it is unable to send, if you're unable to send a lot of current through it and it's unable to say maintain its superconductivity, um, then it's not very useful. It's kind of like a water slide. Um, you can go very fast, but there's a weight limit. And in this case, the weight limit is how much current you send through. And so if you can't send a lot of current, but it's still superconducting, then you kind of restrict a lot of the applications one would use uh, this material for. Um, so you probably wouldn't be able to use power lines uh, you pro uh, for like power transmission. You probably couldn't, you would definitely wouldn't be able to use it for magnets. Um, so there you would restrict the applications of this material to a lot fewer things. Now that would eventually lead to more development and maybe improve the critical current um, but I, that one of the things I was saying is, uh, this is not going to be a useful material until we have not only the temperature at which it's superconducting and the critical current at that temperature. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's sort of uh, a few variables at play here, uh, for say a useful superconductor. Well, and it, it sort of turns out you're even giving them too much credit because it, it, it looks like it wasn't a superconductor at all. Um, there's a scientist at University of Illinois, Urbana, um, who said um, that like what his suspicion was that the, like the copper that they were using wasn't exactly pure and that there was, uh, as they started you know, going through these experiments, um, copper sulfide was one of the, I guess, leftovers from the reaction that was happening when they were making LK99. And that was responsible for the false positive or, or whatever, or have you. And he, he almost says like in this art, he's quoted in nature talking about this. And he says, I was almost in disbelief that they missed this. So it's, it seems like it really was kind of a, okay, like you put some things together, it like levitated. So it had some, like it maybe it looked like a superconductor in a grainy video uploaded to social media, but it really didn't stand any kind of scrutiny. Yeah. So, so two things or a few things about that. So the, the, the video online, um, 
real superconductors, I believe it's specifically type twos, uh, they they have this thing called the Meissner effect and it allows them to, I won't go too much into the details of what that is, but you essentially let, it, you can levitate and move in a bunch of directions um, uh, because of the, the, the magnetic fields are sort of pinned in a way that it stays above. Um, the video, you could see it was unbalanced. It was like tilted to a side. And that was one indication that it was probably not. It was, there was like, are you sure this is the Meissner effect? Uh, because an actual superconductor, if you look up, say, Rebco superconductor um, floating, people will just take some rare earth barium copper oxide superconductor, put it in some liquid nitrogen, and then put it on top of a magnet and it'll just be spinning around like a like a toy um, and that's that's like a real that that's it's the best material we have right now um, whereas the yeah and, and so with this LK99 uh, thing they didn't even publish these papers in a journal it was a preprint so like they were still I kind of feel bad because they probably published they, they put it in a preprint to like get people to look at it and then it just got blown out of proportions um, it was a very quick way to figure out if the results were good or not uh, but it was I don't know without actually asking them I, it seems I don't know if they were trying to publish it and claim it as a fact yet um, but one thing that was so the copper sulfate thing yeah what, what they what they saw there was uh, the copper sulfide impurities so the sulfur impurities I believe it was probably in the phosphorus that led to uh, bonding with the copper at the 148 Celsius temperature it has a phase transition so it changes shape and that change in shape at the atomic level also changes how current flows because uh, it's it's like having like a merge or an intersection change on a freeway uh, and that change in the current uh, or the res resistivity uh, if I'm being correct here that change in resistivity uh, was what they believed was attributed to superconductivity but it wasn't real uh, because they just didn't I think yeah it's hard to keep impurities uh, there was a group at uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany that finally made a perfect single crystal LK99 and it looked really cool it was like purple and all this stuff um, that requires very specific uh, specialty crystal uh, furnaces you have to do zone refining and they basically slowly grew a single crystal of the LK99 and it took a while um, and so once you do that then you can kind of see the intrinsic properties um, but yeah so I, I think it was a good example of like if you're doing deep like condensed matter physics you probably need to be looking at single crystals because that's when you can learn about the actual properties of the material and not things like grain boundaries or other say material agnostic effects that could alter what you're working on there's something weird about how information is traveling these days with scientific advancements or just technology in general because whether it's you know crypto had its moment in the sun artificial intelligence had a moment in the sun lk99 had a moment in the sun it feels like everybody's looking for this silver bullet that is going to you know help us leap into the future and maybe one will happen sometime and maybe you can comment about how that works but i'm struck by this attachment to narratives that are so sudden like oh my god this is the thing that's going to change everything and then we learn sort of in the next news cycle that it's not that big of a deal um but sort of tied to that is there will there be any like actual significance to LK99 itself? Does it have any redeeming qualities or are those crystals that they grew at the at Planck Institute, are they just worthless? Like this is not a material that's going to mean anything in the long term. Um, I, I think that's, it's hard for me to say. I haven't read too many of the papers. Uh, I'll be honest. I Once I kind of saw that it was <laughs> not going t towards, I think the first the theory from Lawrence Livermore and an Illinois Urbana Champagne uh, kind of pointed towards it not being there, and then also the the Max Planck Institute uh, work. They did see that it was a resistor, uh, but we have plenty of resistors, so I I don't know, it, or sorry, not a resistor, an insulator. 
So it it it, it had a very high resistivity um, in its pure form. So it, it's it might be something interesting to still look at, uh, but I'm not really sure. I, I would say it's maybe a few groups should continue looking at it to see what's going on because it does have a similar. So the copper and oxygen that those two say elements are also in some of the best uh, superconductors. So the type twos, they're all cuprates. So they've got copper and oxygen. And so there may be something there that depending on how you dope it, like add certain things to it, you might get some interesting properties. But whether or not that's going to say be immediately effective in the world, um, I, I think a great example is the superconducting magnets that I'm talking about now. Those rare earth barium copper oxide, the Rebco magnets, that was discovered in 1987, I believe. So mm-hmm. they, the first discovery of these magnets uh, that we're finally now using in, in, in um, some applications like fusion and, and MRIs, uh, that, those took over 40 years to develop. And so there, no matter what you sort of do, there's going to be a latent time between idea to commercialization uh, that I think now that people don't have the patience to wait 40 minutes, we're not going to really appreciate. Um, and so, yeah, I I think there are a lot of great aspects of the new way that people are sharing uh, information about science. Uh, I, there, It goes both ways. Like in, in the past, it would have not taken less than a month to verify if this claim was true or not. It only happened because we had the flow of information to be so quick uh, and sort of the hype behind it to drive uh, people in science to be like, oh, this is a great way for me to get funding in the future. It's an interesting problem. Let's just keep going and, and see if this is true or not. Um, so I think there are really good af- aspects of this new way we share information. Um, just remembering that no matter what the technology is, no matter how advanced we are, there is still going to be a latency between idea to um, product uh, that I think is there's 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 only so much you can do to reduce that. Um, yeah. Which kind of leads to my last question on the superconductors. Um, I wanted to ask you what you think the likelihood is of finding a room temperature ambient pressure uh, ambient pressure superconductor over the next ten years, and then sort of second part of the question is if one is found, how long does it take to operationalize that? Is that a forty year process still? Is that a twenty year process? Does that depend entirely on what the superconductor is made of? Um, what what are the prospects for someone actually finding this holy grail, and what what does the implementation actually look like? Yeah, so I would say I'm a plumber in this instance. I'm not the uh, the the person who does. I'm not the the thermal hydraulic sort of engineer here. I just use it, or um, so I wouldn't know what. I wouldn't know where to look for a room temperature superconductor that doesn't need 10,000 atmospheres or higher of pressure. Um, I think that's more for the, the theoretical physics people, uh, and they'll probably tell you something that they're working on is cool. And I, I think let's not hold our breath for one, because at the moment we, uh, even the current superconductors, uh, we haven't fully utilized them and figured out ways to engineer it. And I think if you were to create a room temperature uh, superconductor, it would it would take a similarly long time to uh, produce because these things are very sensitive to uh, environment, uh, concentration of different impurities. They're also sensitive to pressure. Uh, they might even be sensitive to light or other types of radiation. Uh, we know that for some superconductors, they cannot. They need to be shielded from, uh, from say a fusion plasma because they would get damaged from the neutrons that are produced uh, and become useless. And so there's a whole lot of things in consideration here that I think wouldn't accelerate this a 40 year development of a new uh, type of superconductor. I think that that's probably the most certain thing is that it would probably still take around 20 to 40 years. Fair enough. Um, well, let's move into what is your wheelhouse, which is um, nuclear fusion. 
Um, and I wonder if there's going to be some renewed interest in nuclear fusion. I, I went to see Oppenheimer, what, a week or two ago, and Teller is there, uh, played very well, and people are discovering sort of all these um, you know, nuclear physicists who changed the world. Maybe, maybe some for the first time. I've got Richard Rhodes's Making of the Atomic Bomb on my bookshelf and took some, some history of physics courses in college. So I sort of had a vague awareness of all these people, but interesting to sort of see it in the mainstream, like Christopher Nolan's making movies about these guys. Um, but the other thing then is, of course, um, well, not of course, unless you're, you're following this stuff closely, earlier in August, um, U.S. scientists at Lawrence Livermore basically said they repeated the breakthrough that I wanted I brought you on the podcast to talk about it in the first place when we did our first podcast about fusion and that they said that they'd achieved a net energy gain in a fusion reaction for the second time. Um, I'll let you correct me if there's details or not. I couldn't find details when I was prepping for the podcast. Um, but what has changed between sort of when you were last on the podcast at the beginning of this year to now in fusion? Has anything changed? Has nothing changed? Like where, where do you sort of see where we are? Uh, I would say that there has been a lot of change in the relationship between the public sector and the private sector in the U.S. at least. So the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy released around $48 million in funding for private companies. And a lot of these companies that won the awards were small companies that hadn't raised a lot of capital. Uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems was the one exception to that because they had already raised well over 1.8 billion uh but they there there's there's a renewed interest in private companies working alongside the government because there there had been an, a lot of contention in the past say 10 to 15 years between uh the national labs and private companies that were coming up because the national labs i mean they 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 had done a lot of the initial experiments and ran into pure physics problems that caused their experiments to not work. And they were the first pioneers of a lot of this work. And, and then now you see it's similar to how SpaceX kind of rode the coattails of what NASA had done to develop their uh, rocket technology. You see a lot of these private companies either hiring or looking at past experiments that people did at national labs all over the world, but mainly in the U.S. Um, and trying to sort of use that those past that past experience to catapult their own results, but you kind of had this contention between the old guard uh, national lab scientists and the new guard people who were, um, say, starting their their companies. And you see that sort of, let's say, wall coming down a little bit with the DOE starting to fund these private companies. Uh, and I think it's really exciting because there's. Yes, the tokamak is the best design at the moment, uh, but we definitely still need more development and uh, thoughts behind other uh, concepts that may work uh, to get fusion out. So I think since the previous NIF uh, result and this NIF result, uh, you could see that it took almost well over six months to just get replicate results. That's how difficult it is to do fusion. Um, there has been a lot of change. We've gotten $48 million in funding awarded to eight companies. We have companies uh, publishing their designs. There was a recent conference called SOFI. It's the Society of Fusion Engineering, I believe, or Symposium, sorry, on fusion engineering. Um, that, was, that happened back in uh, July or uh, June. Uh, I think it was in June. Um, that was an interesting conference. A few of my friends went and saw like a bunch of the companies giving presentations, uh, seeing the results published for the first time. There, there's sort of a um, a vibrant uh, ecosystem in the U.S. that's being uh, developed because of a collaboration between the private and the public partners. Um, there's also a very big ruling by the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, that happened, I believe, in April, effectively regulating fusion power plants as a distinct new uh, thing compared to fission power plants. So they're now separate. They, they don't have the same regulatory rules, and that will make it a lot easier to propose uh, and build these devices because the rules for fission are, quite frankly, very stringent. Um, and so there's been a lot of regulatory uh, tailwinds, and then there have been 
public-private partnerships that have been signed in the U.S., and just a lot of progress in general uh, in between the past uh, the two NIF shots. What makes it so difficult? Like, why did it take them six months to replicate the first experiment? Is it about getting your hands on the materials? Is it just like the cost of every experiment is super high? Like, why does it take so long? Like, I would have thought that they would have, if they could have, they would have tried to replicate it immediately afterwards. Yeah, so I think they're, I I don't know how hard it was for them to get tritium. Uh, If that wasn't a, because they did use deuterium and tritium, uh, the, the easiest fusion sort of uh prod like the easiest fusion reaction to do uh so it, i think if they weren't the department of energy's premier lab for stockpile stewardship they probably would have had tritium issues but i imagine they got their tritium just fine uh i think the biggest issue is just the variability uh of the experiments and because they did a lot of shots, a lot of tests in between, uh, and they did, weren't able to reproduce the results because um, there's just huge error bars, huge uncertainty in in each um, in each experiment. It's it's here when you use a bunch of lasers, 192 lasers that all have to fire at very precise moments and hit the fuel pellet at the same time to uniformly compress the fuel it's it's very challenging from a control standpoint and it it just goes to show that these there's a lot of engineering uh that goes on here that will be essential to make it more reducible or reproducible uh and we're still even learning the physics behind all this stuff so it, it's even even though these are great breakthroughs uh and even though uh, a lot of the fusion devices, particularly the tokamak, have been improving in performance at rates that exceed Moore's law. We still have a lot to learn. You said that deuterium and tritium were the easiest to use. What are the ideal elements, or do we have a sense of what the ideal elements would be if you could get all the lasers and everything else perfect? Like, what what are the elements that would give you the most efficient or the best fusion reaction? Yeah, so I would say the Deuterium and tritium reaction uh, it has the lowest, say, barrier to happen, and so it's the most efficient fuel uh, by or- by over an order of magnitude. Uh, but there are some. The issue with it is it produces high energy neutrons, which uh, are a radiological issue uh, and complicate the engineering a bit. There are a few other fuels: uh, the deuterium deuterium reaction, which is what the, what the sun uses. Uh, it also produces neutrons. It doesn't need uh, expensive fuel types as well, uh, but it's a lot harder to get uh, working. Um, the sun is able to do it because it's quite massive. We can't produce the same pressure to squeeze the deuterium atoms together. Mm. Uh, there's also deuterium with helium-3, which is what helion energy proposes to use, uh, and that has lower neutrons produced than dd uh, so deuterium or deuterium or DT uh, it produces the third most neutrons out of the three, but the amount of neutrons it produces is still double a commercial efficient power plants. Uh, its advantage is that it is it, you could use direct energy capture. So you, instead of converting the energy from heat to heated fluid or from electricity to heated fluid back to electricity, uh, in this case, you could just go straight from electricity in the plasma to electricity to use. Very hard to do in practice, but in theory, you could do it with that reaction because it produces new, uh, protons. Um, the other thing, the other reaction is proton boron 11, and that's what Tri-Alpha Energy is using. That's the hardest reaction, and it produces no neutrons whatsoever. So if you want a very clean fusion reaction, you would use proton boron 11. It's just very very difficult uh, you need higher than a billion degrees celsius and very high pressures just to get this reaction going i don't uh and whereas with the easiest reaction dt you only need around 160 million 100 million degrees um, and it's not a linear increase it's not 10 times harder it's like 
a hundred times harder. It, it, it's it's a square root curve for how much energy you need to put in to raise the temperature. So it's much much harder than um, to to do the aneutronic fuels like DHE three, so the helium three reaction and the proton boron reaction. They're much more difficult, and so that's why most of our focus is on DT, the deuterium tritium. And because tritium is expensive, we do a lot of our, say, test runs with just DD. So we test a lot with DD, and then when we know we kind of have a good idea of what's going to happen, we use DT. And so there have been fewer than five DT experiments run. To my knowledge, there was one in the UK, there was one in the US uh, in the late 80s, I believe, and then there, the the NIF experiment and Lawrence Livermore. There might be a few others, but they weren't very publicized. Um, all the other experiments, all the hundreds of experiments we've done in the past have been on de- uh, deuterium and deuterium, just because it's plentiful mm-hmm. fuel and it's enough for us to learn about the physics of plasmas. Um, but we can't like produce more energy out than it takes to sustain it. So hmm. that's where DT comes in. And I- I'm glad you mentioned helion. So um, you and Rob authored a 15-page creative disruption report about Helion. Um, that's only available for subscribers to the Knowledge Platform. So if this conversation interests you listeners, feel free to reach out. Um, you know you, you know where to find us if you, if you want to hear more about it. Um, but I thought I'd give you just a second here to riff on that because you know what you're describing, even though we've seen progress, sounds like decades in the future. Like that's just the impression, you know, a, a layman gets from listening to you talk about these things. But Helion has a deal to provide fusion power to Microsoft by 2028. Uh, so uh, talk to me about how that's possible. Is that actually going to be fusion power? Is that a semantic thing? Uh, how is it that Helion and Microsoft are promising this level of advance when the things that you're telling me here make it seem like, as you said, we're still learning the physics, let alone designing these reactors? Yeah, it's, um, I would say Helion has a really, say, interesting design for their power plant. It is, at a high level, very smart because it ignores a lot of the pitfalls from the standard approach to making a tokamak using DT fuel and running a steam cycle. The the tokamak DT fuel steam cycle idea is the most straightforward uh, from a physics standpoint, but arguably the most difficult from an engineering standpoint. With the only other one being a stellarator, but it's it's hard. Basically, it's hard to engineer easy physics. The approach that Helion has chosen is easy engineering, incredibly difficult physics, and they even stated recently that they are never going to achieve ignition using their D helium three concept. And what that means is it's not going to be a self-staining reaction. They can still get more energy out than they put in, but it's never going to continuously sustain the plasma. And what they're essentially trying to design is a diesel engine, but instead of diesel gas to push the piston up and down when you ignite it, they're going to try and compress a plasma very quickly, get some of that energy back as it expands, and then hope it doesn't damage the device when it fizzles out and expands out. And then they take the exhaust out. And so it's a very uh, it's, it's a very and it's a pulse device so it, it's it's just like an engine it's the pistons going up and down very quickly uh, but instead of a piston and diesel we have a plasma so the plasma forms at two ends so it's kind of like you put two cones with the points of the cones together so you have like these con- conical shapes um, actually it's like two ice cream cones that they just and but not the pointy ice cream cone the ice cream cones that are kind of like a cylinder Mm-hmm. Uh, like the the cheaper ice cream cones, the not the waffle ones. Um, they basically put two of those cheap ice cream cones with the bottoms together. They form the plasmas at the ends where the ice cream starts, and then they slam those two plasmas together and stabilize the plasma in the middle where the two ice cream tone, cones touch. Um, and that, in theory, that slamming motion, as well as squeezing it together, in theory, allows it to rapidly compress the plasma. 
And then when the plasma is compressed, the temperature goes up, the temperature and the density go up, and then you, in theory, have more fusion happening. Um, it, the issue is, is we don't know how stable that plasma is. Uh, there are a few physics questions uh, that need to be solved there to see if you're actually going to have a safe reaction. Uh, and by safe, I mean something that won't just like spitter out and just melt stuff. There's no like radiologic, like radioactive damage here. It's just uh, like, oh, heat and then the plasma just runs into the wall and then you just melt the wall. Um, the issue with what Helion's proposing is they say it's straightforward um, but they still have to prove it uh, and they've got some good results from their Trenta program from 2020 they just didn't have a full suite of diagnostics uh, to figure out what was actually going on and so there was a recent conference uh, the Sophie conference that I mentioned earlier they they had they pup they were there they presented on some of their more recent results uh, I'm still waiting to get a paper from that conference to see what they have, but it could be interesting. They also did publish a paper recently uh, giving more of their theory. I would say they're very good at explaining their approach from a high level, and that's partially, I, I assume that's one of the reasons why they got a lot of funding from VCs is because they're able to propose a very, say, coherent high-level approach that seems to have some attractive benefits over the conventional um tokamak dt steam cycle idea and so they don't have the issue of long-lived waste theory in theory uh there that might not be 100 percent true uh they don't have to deal with steam cycles they do direct energy conversion um and so those are the two main sort of benefits and they are converting the conversion of direct energy conversion is nice so they, they, but the issues is are is that they don't have uh, a lot of the physics down, and they still have to monitor their device a bit better. So I'm 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 excited to see their next iteration of the power plant, their seventh design. I believe it's called Polaris, but I think it's a little soon to say that before even testing some of the concepts that they propose like they haven't tested the direct energy conversion technique yet on their on their big device they've tested it at very small levels and they showed that like if you squeeze a plasma and it expands it pushes back on the magnet you don't know how that's going to work at, at a full-scale plasma it doesn't extrapolate um and so there are a lot of uns unanswered physics questions that need to be solved first before you go out and say, oh, I'm going to sell electricity. The other issue is, is they don't really have a demonstrated way to produce the fuel. Uh, they have a patent, but the patent is very outdated and says that they're going to operate at temperatures that are seven times higher than they've ever hit. And remember, it's not seven times more difficult. It's like seven squared, so it's 50 times more difficult. Um, so either their patent is outdated and probably, they, and hopefully they found a better idea, or they don't really have a way to produce their fuel. They, they showed in a recent paper that there's a small energy penalty that you could pay uh, to produce their fuel. Uh, but I don't really, it, it doesn't, there's no proof yet like it's just an idea it's like a paper reactor and so they need to build that first and show results and demonstrate that they can do it first before they sign a power agreement um but maybe this power agreement is sort of like the the impetus they need to start publishing and verifying and and, and spread it spreading their data because from 2018 to 2022 really they hadn't published any results so no one knew what they were doing. Uh, the only results they had was a YouTube video. And it's been only very recently that they've shown any results. And they're a good start, but we kind of really need to see more. So, uh, To your point about this, um, the, I believe it's the, the first new reactors built in the United States went online um, in the last, well, I guess, uh, I can't remember if it was last month or the month before, but in my home state of Georgia. Um, and the project was seven years late and 17 billion over budget, but 
it eventually came to fruition. The question that I'm leading to there is, um, I mean, are we going to, am I going to see a fusion reactor in my lifetime? Is it going to be 10 years from now? Is just the physics, like we don't know enough to sort of say it yet as somebody who's in the space, like what, what do you think is a realistic, um, and sober look at what the future looks like for fusion? I would say we are at, we're, we're, we'll have a very bad fusion power plant in the next 10 to 15 years. It'll, it'll be there. It will not have, it'll not be perfect. It will be connected to the grid in some way. Um, and we don't have the we don't have World War II levels amount of funding and buy-in from the U.S. government and and the world to accelerate and develop fusion uh, like we did in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and even then, it took around 10 years. I think the first plant was in 1950, something like that, uh, to where it was producing power for the grid. So it was it took even though it was nuclear power was developed and tested in the 40s uh it took until like the mid 50s before we had sort of i think there was a westinghouse power plant on the on a river that was basically a submarine engine that they put on land um so i i think we're we're at the point now where we're there are engineering goals that need to be solved so that a fusion power plant will be on the grid in like 10 to 15 years uh, in the past we didn't have an engineering plan uh, and so this is where it's different um, there are, yeah, there are essentially a few companies who have a ample funding to do their prototypes. Uh, I think a lot of prototypes will be finished or being finished in the late 2020s. Uh, and I think once the late 2020s come around, so like 2025 to 2028, we will now, we will then start to see whether or not these prototypes make sense. And then it's a straight, a much more straightforward engineering challenge. So there's there's like a few more physics questions that need to be, say, verified, and then we can start to go into um, this is like building a new airplane uh, sort of territory, and um, yeah. And so one of the I would say the the most recent breakthrough in fusion has been the superconductors. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to our LK ninety nine point is. The Repco magnets that were developed, discovered in 1987, I believe, I could be wrong by plus or one, uh, plus or minus a year. Uh, those magnets are going to enable smaller and more efficient devices, because when you increase the strength of the magnetic field, which you can do by sending more current through the magnet, so the more current you send through because of these new conductors, the stronger the magnetic field. The stronger the magnetic field, the smaller you actually have to make the tokamak to keep it stable. And the smaller it is, the stronger the field is in the middle. The stronger the field it is in the middle of the plasma, the more power you can get out because you're squeezing it harder. And so at the end of the day, you get if you double the magnetic field strength, you increase the fusion power you get out by a factor of 16. And so you can get 16x more power with a doubling in magnetic field strength. And there was a, and I believe I mentioned this earlier, there was a, uh, the, the TFMC, the toroidal field magnetic coil test uh, at MIT in 2021, they showed that they could double the magnetic fields. And so that is, a, I think, a key engineering breakthrough uh, that shows that you can, make these stronger magnets and get much more power out in a smaller device. So not only are you getting more power out, you're shrinking the device. So it's much more cheaper to build because ITER is a great example. The The international fusion reactor that's being built in France is a great example of why it's hard to build something big and complicated because they're also, they're even more behind than the plant at Vodal, Georgia. They're over 20 years behind and they're it looks could be anywhere from twenty to forty billion dollars over budget, <laughs> and so it, it's just it's just it sucks. It, it, it you you want it to succeed, but it's just a very difficult challenge. Um, and so with these smaller devices, the challenge now becomes a materials challenge. 
Because if you have more power in a smaller area, things get hotter. And so do you have these materials that are, um, and that's, this is what I actually research. My research is in material science for these fusion power plants. Uh, our biggest challenge now is how do we build a material that doesn't melt uh, when close to the plasma? And it, it's, it's, it's not an easy problem. We actually have to work with the plasma physicists to come up with a solution that doesn't dump all the heat out into some regions because you melt tungsten even and tungsten has the highest melting point uh, of any pure element so if we if we can't use tungsten uh, or if tungsten's getting melted uh, then it's not just a materials question it's you have to do materials and physics together to, to stop that. so I think that did that hopefully answer some of the questions I know it bounced. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It it did, but uh, I just want to pause on that before I switch gears here for a second. So, if it melts tungsten and tungsten has the highest melting point, like I mean, what, like, where do you, where that doesn't sound like there's physics to solve that. That sounds like a dead end. Like, what? How do you solve that? Yeah. So what you can do is you can much more intelligently direct where the heat goes. So at the moment, we concentrate all the heat at exhaust to a few regions so that we decouple the problem of mechanical strength and high temperature uh, resistance. Uh, so there, and it's smart if you decouple things, but you also make it a lot harder to exhaust the heat out. Hmm. There are other ideas where you can spread the heat out everywhere in the chamber. Uh, so it's a more uniform sort of heat release. And that just makes... Uh, you you sort of combine the constraints of strong material and high temperature load, um, but it's not as severe. And so there, I think there's going to be a balance of how much do you spread out the heat versus concentrate. So it's a it's a it's more of an optimization problem there. Uh, and so that's that's sort of how you'll 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 figure that out. Uh, but we people have done this in hypersonics and uh, the space shuttle. Our, our heat fluxes are a bit more extreme, but you know, it's, it's not unfeasible. Like there's, there's engineering paths forward, <laughs> which is a lot better than what it was 10, 20 years ago. Um, I was going to ask you where, um, where the United States gets most of its tungsten. Um, the USGS website is not cooperating with me, but do you know the answer to that off the top of your head? Uh, I think I do not. I would, Imagine it's probably China or Europe, but yeah. there might be a, a there might I know there's a few vendors in the U.S. who do process it. So Elmet is one of the biggest processors of tungsten in the U.S. Here we go. It's China by far, some Vietnam, some Canada, some Europe. So um, that's interesting in general. Um, well, I wanted to shift gears there a little bit because um, I want to spend the last 10 minutes just l letting this start to traipse on, on the geopolitics, which is I, I asked you when you think a fusion reactor is going to be online. Where do you think the first fusion reactor is going to be? Is it going to be in the United States? Is it going to be in China? Is it going to be somewhere else? Um, and that's a back, backwards way of asking, you know, who's at, the, who's at the front of the pack here? But answer that question however you want. Yeah, I would say a lot of the know-how and expertise is concentrated in the U.S. right now or in Europe. Uh, Europe has a lot of the old guard, uh, the people who have been working on ITER for, since the 80s and 90s. Um, so they're, they've got a lot of expertise, um, but they're not going to commercialize a power plant based off the ITER design. So they're going. They might get the first, say, tokamak break even. I don't think they will, but there's there's a lot of expertise there. Uh, whereas the U.S. I think has a much more dynamic private-led uh, fusion industry, uh, and a lot of the and, and several of these companies have control of the supply chains uh, of the critical materials. So the magnet technology is going to be a huge driver in making fusion commercially viable 
the companies that have the biggest control over the supply chain and actually develop the supply chain are based in the US. So Commonwealth Fusion Systems is one of those companies. Uh, Tokamak Energy is a UK company who has worked with Commonwealth Fusion Systems to commercialize these magnets. Uh, but that's, I think, going to be a, a, a big showstopper for international players who may still have the theory. So China, for example, is graduating, I think, more plasma physicists and fusion engineers every year than the U.S. has in total. Um, or at least that, that was the case before COVID. They've, they have a huge sort of emphasis on plasma physics and fusion engineering. Um, the issue is, is they don't have the current, they don't have the supply chains currently to design and develop those magnets. So even though they have all the barium, they have all the rare earths that you, the raw materials to make the magnets, uh, it has taken a long amount of effort and time from these American companies to actually design it. So there's going to be some contention there with magnet technology, I could imagine, moving forward. Um, and India also has a very uh, robust fusion program. So they're doing a lot of the fabrication of the large components for the ITER program. And so there's going to be a lot of expertise in specialty steel manufacturing and component manufacturing concentrated in places like India and even South Korea. Um, Japan is another uh, big player. They actually have one of the first fusion engineering companies uh, called Kyoto Fusioneering. And they're there isn't a company that's just saying, oh, we're just going to do engineering problems for fusion. Every, all, most of the other fusion startups are coming out with a reactor. This company is specifically saying, we're reactor agnostic. We're just doing, we're looking at specific engineering challenges in fusion energy and looking to solve them. And so mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a vibrant sort of international community, but I think a lot of the power and money uh, and technical know-how are concentrated in Europe and the U.S., with a few examples in Japan uh, and India and South Korea of, say, niche expertise, and then a huge theoretical, uh, say, burgeoning development in China. <laughs> um, we could talk for another hour about the question I'm about to ask you to close out on. So let's consider it sort of the, we'll close on it and maybe open with it next time, um, which is sort of the promise of fusion I mean, it seems like the holy grail of energy. Um, and you said 10 to 15 years to a bad fusion reactor. If we could get to a real, like a good fusion reactor, um, do, do we just stop using fossil fuels to power the grid immediately? I mean, is, is that the level of technological advance we're talking about here? Um, how do we benchmark what fusion could mean to human civilization if we can stick around long enough to make the discovery? Yeah, I actually think that fusion is not going to be a good electricity generation method, its biggest advantage is going to be in cogeneration. Because you produce, at least in the standard tokamak design, uh, you produce a vast quantity of high temperature heat, which can be used for things like hydrogen production, electricity, uh, process heat for chemicals. Um, you might even be able to run things like direct uh, reduction of iron for steel making. There's a lot of uh, industrial decarbonization that might be enabled by fusion en energy and electricity is just the most conceptually easy to grasp but I don't think it's a good uh, I don't I don't not that I don't think I don't know if that's the best use case for fusion uh, because there are plenty of cheap ways to produce electricity and I don't think we're getting away from fossil fuels anytime soon uh, it's there's companies that are even looking at carbon sequestration and all these other techniques to make fossil fuels more uh, digestible. So there's a, a friend of mine has started this company called Mantle uh, in, in Cambridge that is doing this with molten salts. Uh, there, so there's, I think there are ways to engineer these fossil fuels to be less damaging to the environment and still produce energy in a cheap and easy to use manner. And that fusion energy is shouldn't just be limited to electricity generation because I think that's not the only use for it. Uh, there might also be use cases for it in space, and that's actually where Helion got its start. So Helion, before it was Helion, was MSNW LLC based out of Washington, 
And they got a lot of initial funding from NASA and the DOD to develop space propulsion using fusion uh, because it's just a very long-term, steady su supply of tons of power. And so that was one other use case of it. Uh, granted, it's a bit of a pie-in-the-sky idea, uh, but I think the they had the right approach of thinking, what else could you do with fusion? Let's think beyond just electricity production. Because I don't think the, if we've learned anything from fission, I don't see devices with very cheap fuel producing tons of electricity as alleviating the energy issue. If we, mm. if we had a market demand for high amounts of concentrated electricity, then we would just build fission plants. It, it's there, or we just build more renewables and we build storage, which is sort of what we're doing. Uh, but you can, there's only so much storage you can build. And so there's going to be, a, as, as we've had for the past 80 years, a, a blend of different energy generation techniques. So we'll, we'll still have fossil fuels. We'll still have a ton of renewables. That's probably going to be the biggest burgeoning market. Uh, we'll have nuclear, hopefully, because it's, it's a good sort of backup uh, or, or, or thing to have that's always there. Um, and then with fusion... You know, you, you're you're going. I think you're going to have a lot more value with cogeneration than you will with electricity generation. And there was a really interesting uh, work that was done at. Um, I need to remember the the name of the scientist. I'll try to send you the some of his work, but he looked at how you would build fusion for electricity generation in different parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And even at the most say optimistic economic targets and uh, capabilities you wouldn't see a higher penetration than 12% of the electricity market in the northeast and that's where renewables kind of don't work too well because there's not a lot of sun there's not a lot of wind unless you have like a nor'easter or something like that um, and so even then you still have quite a I think it was close to 60 or 70% of the market dictated by renewables, the rest with natural gas, and then 12% at most of, of fusion um, yeah. with, with normal nuclear. So there, and 12% is still a lot, uh, but it's still not what people expect when they see where they take up holy grail of electricity. It's just, I, it's gonna, that's going to be driven more by markets than by technology. Um, markets and regulation are going to drive that, I believe. And uh, if you want very small amounts of distributed production, then designs like Helions are quite great and they might have more market adoption if they work, which is the biggest question. Whereas I, it's hard to offset the cost of these magnets for tokamaks if you're building, say, a 50 megawatt reactor when the magnets cost a billion dollars regardless so hmm. uh, it makes more sense to not just produce electricity but to use the the reactor full tilt and produce things that are high value but aren't based on a fast trading commodity uh schedule like electricity is so like let's say for example you what you you're producing a gigawatt of energy and but people only want to buy say 100 megawatts electricity you don't just waste that 900 megawatts you put that towards other stuff that can be stored like hydrogen you can set it up next to a steel mill or something like that like i think the the next 10 years or so should really be focused on saying where is fusion best suited to have a most profound impact on the global economy and on the climate and i think that's perhaps what we're going to see in the next couple of years it's not going to be Oh, we're going to solve the energy problem or the electricity problems uh, because I, it's not. It doesn't really seem to me like a great electricity source just from a market standpoint. And so, I think that's going to be a, a good shift and something I'd love to talk about more uh, in our next chat of of where fusion could enable um, ideas that are perhaps right now energy infeasible. All right, well, Miles, we'll pick it up there next time. I've got a bunch of research and reading to do just based on this conversation to, to even get close to your level now. So thanks for your time. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? 
Thank you so much, Jacob. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. You can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.